Welcome to Wisdom Exchange TV, where we interview women leaders internationally who've had a social impact in their communities and beyond. I'm Suzanne F. Stevens, Conscious Contribution Cultivator for the You, Me, We Social Impact Group, and your host. In each episode, we'll provide actionable conscious contribution insights to create a social impact to empower you, your organization, and your community. Lots of learning and inspiration all to make your contribution count. We invite you to join the conversation and post questions on our guest's exclusive Wisdom Exchange TV page. We're in for a treat today. Welcome to our guest, Madeline Shaw, co-founder and designer for Isle Canada. It was founded in 1993. Isle is a multi-year best for the world B corporation. Their social impact programs focus on menstrual health and education in the global south. They have touched the lives of over 300,000 school-age girls in 17 nations and closer to home. They also support marginalized communities in Northern Canada and Vancouver's downtown east side. Because of their innovation and designs, over 2 million disposable pads and tampons are diverted from landfills every year. Madeline has also co-founded with her partner, Suzanne Siemens, G-Day, as well as developed a business plan for another idea that was inspired by her and Suzanne's experience of bringing their children with them to work in the early mid-2000s, called Nestworks. Let's welcome multi-entrepreneur award winner, Madeline Shaw. It is so good to have you, Madeline, with us today. Thanks so much, Suzanne. It's my total pleasure to be joining you. You started a social enterprise in 1993, and that is early for Canadians. I'll put it that way. And as we know, social enterprises are building momentum and over the last five years particularly, which is great news. But what was the catalyst for you to start Isle in the first place? So Isle was previously known as Luna Pads, and we only just rebranded in uh, March of 2020 this year to Isle. And I'd be happy to get into that later, but to go way back. Um, so as a university student, I kind of came of age in as a feminist, basically. And I studied, took a degree in women's studies, and it was sort of my academic background and sort of got activated in a leadership capacity in that way. Um, and so I did foresee, like, bringing feminism into entrepreneurship was a, a very kind of natural thing for me. But it wasn't until I would say a few things happened all at the same time. I started having allergic reactions to using tampons was a huge one. Um, and also the role model of Anita Roddick, the founder of The Body Shop. So to me, she was the first person I saw who... Um, was what I wanted to be, was who I wanted to be. Uh, you know, someone who was, uh, you know, um, explicitly leading with values as a for-profit entrepreneur. And, uh, and I just thought, that's what I want to do. That's the kind of person I want to be. And um, so with respect to the tampon situation, I started to make cloth washable um, pads and underwear for myself originally, um, just to solve for my own needs. And then um, I enjoyed the experience of using them so much and found it so you know, profoundly transformational that that's what motivated me to commercialize the products um, because I wanted to, to kind of share that with um, other people who menstruated. Now, when you started the business, did you start it on your own 
I did start it on my own and uh, in 1993. And so I wanted to be a fashion designer. That was kind of my first love. And that's what made it well after feminism. And I know those are sort of an interesting combination, but I'm a very creative person. And, uh, and so I started a, a retail boutique and a local production, like a very small garment manufacturing company here in Vancouver where we were making Luna pads and selling those at my store as well as selling them to health food stores across Canada. And I also launched a website in 1997, I think, or 1998. That was our first uh, e-commerce website. And then I met my business partner, Suzanne Siemens, who leads the company today at a leadership um, course in 1999. And so until that point, I had had a sole proprietorship as a business. When I met her, I had already uh, decided to close my store and focus just on Luna pads and the underwear and met her and we decided to incorporate a new company um, with uh, some venture capital support as well and herself as one of the partners. And so we created a new company in uh, 2000. This is personal for you, and yet it's not personal for you because you were inspired to do something bigger than yourself. And in, in doing that, your beneficiaries are girls and, and women. Why was that important to have a beneficiary of girls and women? As I mentioned earlier, feminism is something that kind of came into my life when I was around 17 years old. And just due to some very personal experiences, you know, I experienced some um, sexual violence firsthand. Um, I had seen some really terrible uh, things happen in kind of this frosh week hazing sort of thing that happened to me at university. Um, where some really outrageously sexist uh, behavior was happening that was very hurtful to myself and some other students. And so it just kind of brought out this sort of pushback of like, hey, something's really wrong here. And I felt called to leadership in response to it. Like it wasn't just like, okay, I'm gonna vote for somebody with feminist values. It was like, I'm gonna actually take action. I'm gonna, you know, I was leading um, Take Back the Night marches and screening you know, feminist films and leading no means no anti-date rape um, type campaigns at university. So those issues are just near and dear to my heart because they matter so deeply and also because it had touched my life personally in some really, really challenging ways. When I saw, you know, with menstrual health, the ability to empower people who menstruated to feel more at home in their bodies, you know, around a topic that has traditionally been shamed you know, where we've been taught to feel lousy about the fact that our, you know, bodies bleed once a month. I was, I was like, this is a really great way to kind of get at a gender equality issue in a very material way, you know, like through using these products, it really changes your perspective about your body. And so I was sort of moved by that. Like it wasn't just sort of a political thing. It was an emotional thing and almost a spiritual thing because there's this profound connection with the cycles of nature the lunar cycle, the tides, all of these things. Like I think we're all bound up in that. And when we have our cycles, we're engaging in relationship with that. And most people don't think about it that way. They think about menstruation as a problem to be solved or something that needs to be cleaned up and not spoken of. And my perspective came to be very opposite to that. That in fact, the more we engaged with it, the more we learned about it, the more we talked about it, the more we would get rid of shame promote empowerment and just kind of self-care and self-love. How does the aisle actually help do that? Like, because, I mean, we have pads, we have 
tampons, we have other, you know, anything to help with our menstrual cycle. How does your company actually differ from what's already available out there? Well, for starters, our products are exclusively reusable. So we don't sell any products that, that are, are disposable. There's lots of those out there. And, and you know, what's great about those products, to give them credit, is they, they, they solve a very short-term need. Um, you know, in a crisis situation, if you're, you know, get your period in the middle of a meeting or a class or something like that, and, and you've got to just get on with your day, then a disposable product is probably the way to go. And, you know, just grab it out of a dispenser and, and you know, get on with your day. So, but for longer term needs, um, and also from an environmental perspective, a reusable product is, is far superior to disposables. They're also more comfortable. They're also arguably better for folks' health. They cause fewer um, irritations, like I was having rashes and infections, that kind of thing. The aisle pads and underwear are not treated with any kinds of um, chemicals or perfumes, um, waxes, surfactants, or common ingredients in disposable menstrual products. And so they're better for your health. They're better for the planet because they're reusable. So instead of using something for just a few hours and then throwing it away, you're, you're washing it and reusing it over, you know, many, many years, which also helps you save money. <laughs> so, and finally, and it's not the most important thing, but it's kind of about the attitude. It's like we, we embrace and promote a very inclusive attitude towards people who menstruate, including people who don't identify as, as girls or women and who still menstruate. And that's something that's really important to us to include non-binary and transgender mm. individuals who are menstruating nonetheless and, and make sure that they're visible and, and part of our message and part of um, who we're thinking about um, when we think about our customers. So it's kind of about the attitude and about the products as well that we're not just there to kind of sell you something and then get you to buy it again after you've thrown it away. Like we're there for a really a lifetime relationship to be with someone through their entire lives as, as cycling beings. And then having really meaningful conversations about that, helping to educate about menstrual health and related gynecological issues, reproductive health issues, that kind of thing too. So, yeah. This episode is sponsored by Make Your Contribution Count. For You, Me, We, a book written by Suzanne F. Stevens. It's time to act. Let this book be your guide to having a sustainable social impact while living your most meaningful life. Thanks for listening. Now back to our show. You distribute to 17 countries and people can buy it across Canada as well. But yeah, so to clarify, so the 17 countries, that's in the global south. Isle, for the most part, is a, is a northern, western, consumer-facing business. So if you go to periodisle.com, anybody can buy period underwear, menstrual cups, um, washable menstrual pads, and supplies to um, use and carry, you know, uh, transport and, and clean them. And, but in meanwhile, there's a whole other arm to the company that supports through a more charitable kind of angle, we support education primarily for girls in the global south by supporting their menstrual health. And so as a lot of your viewers may be aware, um, period poverty, as it's commonly known, is a huge issue. I mean, not just, not just in the global south, it's a problem here too. Um, work of access to quit menstrual supplies prevents people from working, from living their lives um, in dignity, prevents students from you know, fully engaging with their studies and so on. So that's been, is an issue that we've like, uh, since 2000 been actively engaging in and through, whether through donation programs or 
other types of innovation where we share our IP with um, other groups so they can make their own pads or make their own underwear. We, we donate money, we've invested in um, other companies, like we just try and find really creative ways of supporting other entities, other enterprises to deal with this issue in ways that we, you know, cannot do as effectively, you know, from Vancouver, for example. But as a consumer products business, our products are actually available in 40 countries. And, but most of our business is transacted online. I want to dive in to the, the charitable arm of this further in regards to you were saying that you give IP sometimes it's it's money how did you find people to collaborate with and had a need so that you could help them in a meaningful way in a more underdeveloped country yeah I mean this is partly the magic of the internet but also the fact that we've been doing this for so long. So, you know, we've got this incredible legacy and the Lunapad slash Isle brand is extremely well known in the natural menstrual health field. And, and when it comes to the global South, in fact, it's a, it's a much better solution because there aren't, you know, there isn't often landfill capacity. So even if you give someone some disposable products, well, they're going to use them up in a month or two and throw them in a, in a non-existent landfill and then they're going to need more. So it's like, it doesn't, it's not the best solution. Reusables are a better solution. And that in terms of finding partners, I mean, it, the word just kind of gets out. Like we, we've been doing this for so long. Um, the first person who approached us about it actually was in 2000, a woman from Zimbabwe um, wrote to us, wrote us a letter. Okay. A letter. Uh, to let us know about this crisis in the global south that we had not previously been aware of. You know, our focus was Western-facing, consumer-facing um, kind of thing. And, and we were just kind of, we, we just pledged to do whatever we could. So we sent over like thousands of um, pads that had slight imperfections, you know, that, and just for free. And that were perfectly usable, but they weren't quite as, you know, maybe the stitching was off here or there. Or there was a bit of a flaw in the fabric or something. And we started that way. And then we started blogging about it in 2006 um, when we launched our first blog. And so just putting content out there, like letting people know that this was an issue that we were interested in and available, you know, to offer support to the extent that we were able to. And then otherwise through various business networks that were part of yeah, I'm just trying to think of some of the, the bigger ones that were, I mean, we're part of so many now. I would say the CEO network, which is how we met, um, is a big one. The Social Venture Institute is another organization, Social Venture Circle. Like there are sort of kind of umbrella organizations that where people already know that the people who are connected to those have a social impact kind of bent. And then meanwhile, the whole issue of what's now known as menstrual equity thanks to Jennifer Weiss-Wolf, an American activist, which sort of encompasses the whole menstrual health, period poverty, like kind of all of it, has very much come of age. And so certainly we were part of creating the visibility for that by talking about it publicly, but it's a whole slew of American activists and brands and, and nonprofit organizations dedicated to menstrual health. Like, so for us, you know, we're a for-profit company that obviously is social mission-based, um, in terms of its, you know, ethos, and then has activities that we do, you know, that are expressions of that. But folks just find us now, it's incredible. And then we have a very strong relationship in particular with a company based in Uganda called Afropads. And so we mentored their startup in 2008. 
and visited Uganda in 2012 to say hello. And at that point, they had 30 staff. And then we invested in them as shareholders in 2013. And today they've got about 200 staff and um, have supplied, I think, about 5 million girls with their products in southeastern Africa. As, as you know, I've spent a lot of time in Africa. I know, yeah. And giving jobs is also an important element of that and, and investing in them to produce it. So you gave them your IP, helped them set up, you've invested in their business as well. Now, have you done that anywhere else where you've replicated that model? Not to that extent. Like it really, that relationship is really a singular one um, that has been built for a very, very, very long time. And yeah, so it, that's a standalone in a way. Like other examples where we've like sent out patterns and groups have made their own, you know, whatever. It's, it's not been pursued as a for-profit venture, for example, the way Afropads has done. So right from the get-go, I think they, they knew that they were going to be growth oriented and circumstances happened to meet people who were interested in investing in the company in the early stages. And in our case, like we really just mentored them and um, supported them through answering their questions and, and that kind of thing. And the financial aspect came much later in 2013. Okay. So, and then in other scenarios, you're, you're just sending the pads then where people. Yeah, yeah we do that or we'll send money because sometimes that's more effective. Like basically we're always looking, um, Suzanne, to optimize the impact and also to support the greatest empowerment uh, for the folks involved. So, you know, when we are donating something, okay, but what's the most sustainable way for, you know, are there ways, do these people possibly have resources to make their own or can there be, as you pointed to, an employment part of this, um, we're always kind of looking for that because just the, the straight power dynamic of, of, you know, I give, you receive is problematic. You're nodding very knowledgeably about that um, for a bunch of reasons. And yeah, basically we're just seeking to empower people to create solutions that are community-based and optimize things like employment and that kind of thing. It's sometimes a challenge, right? Particularly when you start something and to start empowering people to do something right at the beginning when you're you're just starting and people are asking you for what you have and sometimes the easiest thing to do is here <laughs> have what i have um, but it's not the sustainable choice necessarily and that's where i've found a lot of organizations kind of i want to help but then you realize that that may not be the best avenue to long term for sustainability to keep sending something over a long period of time. Yeah, and especially yeah from an environmental perspective too like I mean sending something from Canada to you know somewhere in Africa is like you know what does that look like from an emissions perspective and it it just doesn't make sense. So um but that said sometimes it is the best solution and but even like for example right now I'm part of a UNICEF Duke University um innovation accelerator where they've got half a dozen entrepreneurs from throughout Southeastern Africa. And I'm kind of working as an advisor with them and kind of a quasi mentor advisor to these entrepreneurs and, you know, things like that, where it's sometimes it's just about having a conversation and, and supporting people in terms of giving them some feedback or some encouragement, that kind of thing. So sometimes it's not transactional at mm -hmm. all from a product perspective. It's much more, um, 
relational. And I think that in many ways, that's just as valuable. Like when you know that someone is kind of rooting for you and someone can maybe give you some feedback on their ideas, that kind of thing. Uh, and I'm just very mindful of the fact also that we're not located there. Like I am a white Western woman with extraordinary social privilege sitting here in Vancouver, BC. And it is not my place at all to try and sort of adopt kind of a paternalistic, like I'm going to tell somebody in Tanzania how to run their business. Like that just doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. So it's more about encouragement. And if you can see it, you can be it. The way I pointed to Anita Roddick earlier in the interview is like, you know, someone somewhere has done this thing in a way that I want to do it. And so if you can have a relationship with that person and, and you know, that they're thinking about you and, and can maybe offer some connections or encouragement or whatever, then I think that's really valuable. Absolutely. And, you know, there's so many programs out there where connecting East, West, North, South together, where particularly for women and exchanging ideas from peer to peer, uh, rather than necessarily even mentor there where you're collecting all that information and you're just sharing, helping each other or mentor where need be, um, where someone has a gap and somebody else has a knowledge. So good. That's fabulous that you're doing that. Now, you brought up something that's also very important to, to Isle, and I think we need to discuss it, is the zero waste ambition that uh, you're working toward. Tell us a little bit about that uh, process and also about the shipping methods that you use to try to reduce waste. Isle takes our kind of metrics measuring of every single aspect around social impact and sustainability extremely seriously. So it's actually a really, really detailed process. So um, we became a founding Canadian B Corp in 2012. And B Corp, for people who, who are not aware of it, um, it's a third party um, certification body that measures, like subjects companies to an extremely, um, like a 360 degree, super rigorous assessment of every, like the most granular stuff you can imagine, like everything, like how we pay our employees, where all our supply chain, like uh, so many, so many things. And we also participate in a, a carbon footprint measurement process called Climate Smart. So it's, so <laughs> it's hard to talk about it in very general terms. And also because I'm not intimately involved in like, say, deciding who, where our shipping is, is happening, but it's based on really, really very seriously, like we've got a supplier code of conduct, like in order for us to even be doing business with someone, they need to sort of prove to us, like, you know, let's say it's a fabric supplier. Where, where was their fabric grown? Um, what certifications do they have to prove that it's organic? What certifications do they have to prove that they practice, you know, progressive practices with respect to employment and, and human rights? So it, it's, a, it's a completely all-encompassing process for us. So to get to zero waste, though, to go back to your original question, we found some really creative ways to upcycle fabric waste. And so fabric waste can be recycled or upcycled because those two processes are different. So when they're upcycled, it goes to a locally based organization that takes fabric waste and makes it into furniture stuffing. So where that fabric ends up, rather than going through a chemical process of being broken down to be recycled, which is quite energy intensive, although has merit, we're looking to maximize the reuse of the fabric as it more or less exists. So it's kind of shredded into pulp and then it's sold to furniture makers. So that's one way we do it. And the other way is for it to actually be 
fully like deconstructed, melted down, and then made into new fabric, and which is a much more energy intensive process and one that we do less of. The, that though is in place for all of our textile waste in our Vancouver-based production, which is all of our pads are made here in Vancouver. And so that feels good. So that's a fairly, fairly closed loop process. Unfortunately, the textiles themselves are not milled in Vancouver or in Canada even. They come from many different suppliers globally. They come from the United States, from India, from Asia. And again, it's just a very rigorous process of trying to make sure that those suppliers are who they say they are in practicing business the way they say they're practicing business. And, but to that end, you know, I was just on a business trip to Asia in November and I went to Shanghai and to Taiwan and to Cambodia to see our underwear being made in, in Cambodia. We've never done that before. And so I wanted to see firsthand and we wanted as a company just to like verify everything. And it was the most fascinating, interesting process to see like upfront how, you know, how are the sewers treated? What are the conditions of the factory, which is immaculate by the way. And I just learned a lot in the process, the company's woman owned and uh, a woman who used to be a kindergarten teacher, believe it or not. And yeah, it, we're great believers in, in relationships and just doing, doing everything we can to kind of build trust and responsiveness among our suppliers, like treat each other as human beings. You're more likely to get to, if there's a problem or there's any confusion around something, then you're going to be able to resolve it if you have a quality relationship with those people. Absolutely. And I love the fact that you went to Cambodia, you know, because often when you look at a label, it's like, oh, it's made in China. Oh, how's this made? Right. Mm -hmm. And, and the reality of being a B Corp, those who do know what that is, there knows the rigor or has an idea. There's a, there is rigor. And just to that point, I mean, there is so much work to, be qualified as a B Corp. What do you see as the benefit for your business to be a B Corporation? Well, I mean, given that part of our the mandate of our business is to practice business in a different way, like that's part of the point for us. It what's, it's what motivates us. It's kind of an internal thing. Like most consumers don't know yet what B Corp is. They are finding out and that's great. So, you know, as someone looking at our products versus somebody else's products, it may not necessarily, like they may still be like, oh, I want the blue ones, you know, or whatever. So that's coming though. But from, it's more from an internal, like, it's just the way we, we believe that business should be practiced. And we also, it's a very, very powerful network of other businesses. So if you're looking for a supplier, an investor, like investors like the B Corp thing a lot. So social impact investors, like it's definitely a no BS badge of like seriousness because <laughs> you can't just say, you know, oh, we're thinking about B Corp certification, like you either are or you aren't. And there's no two ways about it. And so for people for whom it is, they are aware of it, they are serious about social environmental impact. It's a hugely, like, it's really important. And also just, yeah, choosing suppliers, it's very valuable and just um, to be part of, like Suzanne's gone on amazing like B Corp retreats and met Eileen Fisher and done a million things like that. And just really like, it's a great education. They offer wonderful leadership education. And so I can't say enough good things about it. I'd say if, if somebody has a B2B 
type enterprise, the value proposition is stronger because you're doing business with other businesses. And so you can just sort of dive into the B Corp pool and, and they'll know that you're, you know, coming from a place of integrity and transparency and so on. And so materially, I'd say it's, it's going to be a little more beneficial if you're a B2B enterprise than you are a B2C. To your point, I think there's only 150 B Corps right now in Canada. And that will change. I, I mean, the, the discussion's coming up a lot more. So it will have, and there's more consciousness with consumers, right? They, they do want to make better choices. They just don't know what it looks like, that better choice. So that's becoming more apparent too. Now, this is sort of going a little bit right. You know, in developing your business, what would you say was one of your biggest, if not a misstep you made informing aisle and, and how did you address it? I like the approach that failure isn't really failure if you learned something. And I think that's what you're, you're sort of driving at. And I kind of wish to be honest, like, okay, so we started, you know, talking about menstrual health way before anybody else did. Basically there were two other companies that were talking about it um, when we started. And, and for the most part, people were like, Ugh like gross, washing, you know, your period underwear, washing your menstrual pads, forget it. So it was really hard from a marketing perspective. That started to change in around 2012, 13, 14, 15. And there was a huge shift in terms of, there were some new companies that came on board, some new social activists who came on board. And, but Suzanne and I were, I think we were a bit fatigued at that point. Like we were sort of, we had tried, we've been trying for so many years to get people's attention and, you know, obviously managed to build a successful enough business, mm. but we decided intentionally just to take a couple of years and really focus on raising our families and just kind of have the, the business as a bit of a lifestyle business. Like it kept us going, we kept it going, but not to aggressively pursue growth because we were just sort of exhausted, honestly. When that happened, though, other people did. And so, so now you've got this kind of tsunami of new startups in what's now called Femtech that includes menstrual health and sexual pleasure and various other aspects of um, sexual and reproductive health, um, raising millions of dollars in venture capital, mostly based in the United States. And so now we're faced with kind of a host of um, other compatriots. We don't like to even use the term competitor, who are super well financed with the, with the, you know, also the uptake of e-commerce and, you know, the prevalence of digital marketing. We have a new slew of competitors in our space who are basically able to outspend us in, you know, on Instagram and Facebook, which has kind of made the entire game, if you will, of the menstrual health, natural menstrual health segment being about who can spend more money on Facebook and Instagram which is really sad <laughs> because, you know, we wanted to run a business that was about feminism and, you know, gender equity and sustainability. And now the way the market is going, and it's also driving down product quality and there's sort of cheap knockoff stuff coming out. It's like, ugh, I'd really, we'd really imagined something different for the industry. And so I like to think that our legacy is to take a stand for authenticity and taking a stand for integrity and really not just paying lip service to feminism and not just saying, oh yeah, we're a green company, we're a green business. 
without actually meaning it. And I just hope that that will be of value to the consumer when now there's a lot of noise in the space. And so that's a bit of a long way of answering your questions, uh, question, but I feel like that's the one thing I sort of feel a bit of regret about is not just kind of doubling down when, yeah, just a whole bunch of new people started coming into the market and just to uphold like a higher standard of business practice, I guess. Thanks for sharing that uh, with us for, for lots of reasons, because it is not easy to have a social enterprise that, that with high standards where the purpose comes before the profit and yet the, and the motivation and ideals and integrity, all of that comes as part of the package. It's, it's difficult to maintain that, that sort, of, sort of business. What's interesting to me too is that what you're saying is like in the last you know, five to six years, there's been kind of the uptake. And that's what I've noticed in my business when the same thing in the last five to six years, people have been talking about having a social impact and, and things are starting to almost get too muddy because not everyone's measured to your point that you can say you're green, but are you really, are you measured? Are you actually living up to the ideals that you say you are? And it comes pay to play goes back to the transaction because I'm paying more for Instagram and stuff like that. I, I do find that really interesting that something that is, is executed with the best intentions, the winner, if you will, um, is the one that's actually promoting the financial element. And I just, a lot of my research tells us that that shouldn't be the case. It should be shifting. And I just hope it does. I don't really know how we could have done that differently. I think it would be different if we'd been located in the United States and just had more access to, to funding. Um, but I think it really ultimately came from us. And because neither of us took a maternity leave when we had our kids, we just brought them to work with us. And because we couldn't afford to do that. Well, I mean, maternity leave wasn't available for, wasn't funded by the Canadian government for business owners at that time either. So and yet we have a flourishing business. It's great. But it's just, you know, you see these like, oh, hey, so-and-so raised five million, you know, so-and-so is this and so-and-so is that. And it's like, wow, this is, this is really something. What would you say three things that you have done that make the social impact sustainable? Do you mean from an environmental perspective or from a like time, like a longevity perspective? Longevity perspective. I point back to B Corp for sure. That's huge. And because it, it, it influences culture and it also makes it measurable. So that's huge. But also it's just part of our DNA. Like we wouldn't be aisle without that. Like it's, it's, I think what our key differentiator is in the menstrual health space, just that in addition to the fact that we're one of the, you know, so-called OGs of, of doing this, but also that we, we take sustainability and social impact seriously just to the nth degree like it's just you know almost we're I and mean, fanatical is not the right way of putting it but we kind of are <laughs> and, um, um so it's culture right it's like when you do something for that long and your leaders are that committed then it's kind of it's in the dna of the entire organization in in a way that's sort of indelible and you know, we're seeing now there in the past few years, there have been some leaders in both the for-profit and the non-profit space who have talked a big game with respect to ethics and sustainability and, and inclusion and stuff like that, who have been exposed as terrible leaders who 
you know, have been stepping on other people and taking their ideas and treating staff poorly and that kind of thing. And it's where, where the what you see on the outside isn't what is actually going on in the background. And so our commitment is that what you see in, on the surface is, you know, it's coming, it's the same thing. The integrity is just rock solid. Your employees, and how do you involve them? Like, how do they feel connected to the, the mission? And how do you interview them to ensure that they're well aligned? Yeah, I mean, we really look for values alignment. I mean, obviously, skill is, is an important thing when you're looking for staff, but values alignment, we, we, we wouldn't be able to, I think, hire someone without that. Like, there just has to be people who believe in our mission and who have experience to sort of support that. Like, this isn't a new thing for them. There's, like, nobody ever comes to us who is trying to figure out, like, oh, should I work for the bank or should I work for Isle? I'm not sure. And it's like, we don't even get the people who are thinking about maybe working at the bank. We only get the people who... Um, are the mission-driven folks. So it just feels like there's been, and it, it's a classic millennial thing, right? They want to work for companies that are making a difference. And, and so we really only tend to attract those types of people. Like we don't get people who are like, like, what did you think this was going to be? Like, you know, and somebody's <laughs> confused. Yeah. And then uh, on a regular basis, like we're just all, because we're sort of on the same page, like everybody is an intersectional feminist. Nobody needs to have that explained to them. We're all, you know, for example, right now, deeply involved in racial justice work, like really going, yeah, okay, you know, sustainability, great, tick that box, you know, whatever social responsibility, great, tick that box. But what are we doing as individuals to unpack our social privilege and dismantle white supremacy? Like every single person on the team is we've given a personal budget to each of them to whatever form of learning feels appropriate to you. You want to buy books, you want to attend webinars, you want to do whatever you want, go do it. And you know, those types of things, we fund volunteer hours for people to do, pursue, you know, some people are really into environmental issues and indigenous rights issues. Other people are really into transgender and non-binary inclusion and justice issues, that type of thing. So we just really support it. Um, people around animal rights, like our team members have like certainly like kind of that whole spate of left-leaning, left-green feminist sort of interests and so we we just support who they are like nobody needs to apologize for who they are and nobody needs to explain you know their kind of political orientation we just take people where they are yeah and very flexible work environment hours and that kind of thing which is fabulous and you have 13 employees i believe is the yep. number and and often uh, i was actually doing an interview the other day i was being interviewed but someone was asking me was so surprised that when I said, you know, I let my employees um, invest in where they want to invest far as our pool of money where we wanted to give to charities or time, et cetera. This, oh, you're such a small business doing that. And it got me thinking, yeah, but it's not just about me. <laughs> so if you want to engage your employees, and again, you're a small business that is allowing and creating an environment for people to explore themselves. So kudos, because it can be done in a small business. And a lot of times people think when you do a small business, yes, I understand your business is, you're very specific about what you want to achieve, but a lot of times you hear, well, 
and when I'm really profitable, I'll worry about that stuff. Yeah, and I, you know what, I, there is a there is a rationale for that because you do really need funding. Like when you're to get going, nobody wakes up and goes, "Oh, hey, uh, you know, a wash with startup capital." And I understand that, like that's sort of the put your own uh, oxygen mask on first kind of per the airplane analysis. And I I do understand that, but I think that there are some there are ways you can build in, like even how you approach supply chain or supplier relationships and that, you know, you can have a, you can have a code of conduct for your suppliers that, you know, uh, is very specific about human rights and environmental stuff for sure. And that's a way it doesn't cost you anything. You're not necessarily donating huge amounts of money to anybody, but you're being really careful and sending a really important message about how you do business and what you expect for from the people you are doing business with. The other thing that I see a lot of that I think is great is sort of buy one, give one models, right? Like you even have that for your book, right? And we do that. In fact, to go back to Afropads to this day, we have for every uh, aisle pad that's sold, there's a percentage of the proceeds of that that goes towards funding production of a pad to for a girl who can't afford one in East Africa. Okay, great. You know, so that way you're just kind of building it in. It's not like you need to build up this huge reserve of capital that you then deploy to do some big, you know, thing. Like I think it's, it can be in smaller ways that are just part of your practice. Great advice. In regards to the pandemic, has, have you seen any implications on your business, your, be it your employees, be it your, your customer uh, sales, anything like that? So we, we trans, transitioned from being Lunapads to being Isle on March 11th. Not great timing, um, but whatever, there you go. And so we had planned, you know, big media splash and oh, tons of, you know, noise and, and none of that kind of came to pass, um, you know, due to COVID. But, and this is the good part. I mean, you've always got to go have, you know, glass half full, glass half empty. Our business, because we were already well adapted to e-com, like we do, we were already doing most of our business online. Um, like, which is to say to the tune of north of 85%. Like that's really how, how it works for us at Isle and digital marketing and, and so on to support that. So we didn't need to make that pivot the way a lot of people did. We didn't need to, you know, go, oh, how we're going to, you know, do this. And so our sales have became, are just steady. Like we haven't had to lay anybody off. We haven't had to take anything really drastic. People are working from home, which is relatively easy when you're mostly an e-com based company anyways. Uh, and I would say, if anything, it's just been kind of in the same way that this has been hard and uncertain for everybody that, you know, we did a big planning session the other day of like, we're not doing strategic planning anymore. We're doing contingency planning. So just saying, well, if this, then this, if this, then this, if this, then this, instead of assuming that, oh, well, you know, everything's going to be kind of more or less the same in 2021, two, three, four, five. We don't know that. There's all kinds of, you know, as we know. And have seen in the last six months and but we basically talked through okay what happens if donald trump wins the you know the u.s election and there's all day like or there isn't a vaccine for COVID, or you know all those things happen mm. what is going to happen for us one of the things though that we have noticed is that with people staying home more you know who wants to go to a drugstore if you don't have to everybody's shopping online so that has benefited us 
And also with people being home more, they're more likely to try reusable menstrual products because they're not like, what am I going to do? You know, when I go to work, how am I going to change my pad or how am I going to change my menstrual cup when, you know, I'm at school or that kind of stuff. They're not going to those places anymore. So being at home and close to, you know, a bathroom and private space and laundry and all of that has made customers more likely to want to switch because it just suits their lifestyle better. Are you producing masks? Yeah, and that's a, that's a buy one, give one that we're doing as well. And so just to briefly get into that, yeah, we started getting requests for masks from local social service agencies servicing marginalized communities in Vancouver's downtown east side, which is a very, it's a rough place. And there are a lot of folks there who need help. And so because we work with sewn products all the time in Vancouver, we kind of adopted part of our manufacturing capacity to make masks instead of pads and then have been donating. I think we've donated about 3,000 so far to um, frontline workers working with marginalized populations. So those people dealing with addictions, people experiencing homelessness, mental health challenges, that kind of thing that are very concentrated in that area. And so, yeah. And then in the meantime, providing kind of, you know, very high quality locally made masks to anybody who wants to buy them. Which is fabulous. Now you've done a lot and you've been motivated be it from when you were 17 years old and, you know, have really uh, stuck to your mission, which kudos, because it can be challenging. Uh, Have you ever done anything that makes you really uncomfortable, but if you didn't do it, you wouldn't have achieved the impact that you have today? Oh, goodness. It's interesting, actually, that you mentioned that. So I'm in the process of writing a book. And it is one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. And it just is like, it, it's so challenging. It's brought up all of my insecurities. It's brought up all of my demons and all of those, those horrible voices that tell you that, you know, all the bad things. And, but it feels really important to me. And I, uh, and in kind of, it's almost like a micro entrepreneurial challenge. Like it's like, it's like another venture in and of itself. Like you go through the whole, who's the customer and, you know, whatever, what's the competitive landscape and all, all the things that you need to sort of analyze. Right. And as well as kind of digging really deep in the, like, what is my message? What is my brand? What is my core story? What is the value proposition? Why should somebody, you know, why would somebody want to read this? How, you know, what good can I do for someone in offering this? And so I feel like by pursuing this particular challenge, by just staying with it, no matter how hard it gets, I'm doing something really important for myself, as well as just for the readers who are going to read this and hopefully get something, you know, some unique value out of it and inspiration. And so, uh, well, stepping away from the company. So there you go. This is, I think this is a really interesting point, maybe for some people who are listening, because most of the conversation about entrepreneurship, is about starting and about succeeding and about overcoming challenges. And it's like, okay, what about stepping away? What about when you know, you know, how to know when it's time to let go and then doing that in a graceful way that doesn't harm others and isn't, you know, you know, I get there's situations that are, that are kind of where there's friction and stuff, but that wasn't what was true for me. I just kind of realized starting in around 2013, 2014, that my time was drawing, there would be a finite point for me at the company. And basically I just kept having other ideas about other things that I wanted to do. And also watching just the, 
the way the company was going in terms of honestly e-commerce and which is where it needed to go and which I thought was great, but personally is not my, like the online space is not something that really intrigues me. It's not, I don't love it. And I don't love social media. I don't love um, e-commerce doesn't interest me. You know, Google analytics just makes me want to, you know, go somewhere else. And so realizing that the core of what the company was doing was not in line with, with things that I loved or my skill set, I thought, well, I, other people need to do this. Like other, this is, this business model is working and um, which is great, but I don't need to be there in order for it to work. And so then I kind of went into sort of a crisis of like, well, what would I do? You know, our identities get so wrapped up in, in you know, who we are as founders, right? And, but bit by bit by bit, I understood that it was time to let go. And Suzanne became CEO of the company and I think it was 2013. And it was funny, right after that happened, I, I was feeling a bit low and then suddenly I had this huge creative download for an event series. I don't know, at that point it was just one event that I wanted to do, uh, kind of a rite of passage event for adolescent girls. Uh, ages 10 to 12 to kind of acknowledge that really key life transition between childhood and adolescence at the time my daughter was nine and so I decided I just had this like massive vision for it and decided to launch it in 2014 and it what it showed me was like I when in letting something go something new actually wanted to come through me and so I carried on, I mean, I've, you know, working with the company part-time, but not in a leadership, not in an operational capacity. Suzanne has obviously, as we can see, grown into just an extraordinary leader of the company. But working through that on kind of a practical and an ego-based level was a really, really challenging experience where I had to be really honest with myself and just be willing to let some stuff go where I, I didn't know what was going to happen and I didn't know even who I was in a way and but it's ultimately turned out to be very positive so I'm I'm very happy I'm writing about that in the book thank you for sharing that story because like you said is knowing when to step away uh, is such an important important piece so we're going to wrap up uh, I'm going to ask you some what I call rapid fire questions <laughs> uh, <laughs> no don't be nervous don't be nervous that's what editing's for no <laughs> <laughs> All right, just some fun rapid fire questions. What is the one thing you wish you knew prior to engaging down the path of creating aisle or Luna pads? Uh, that I didn't have to do it alone. Worst piece of advice you ever received? <laughs> um, everything happens for a reason. Best piece of advice you've ever received? Trust the process. Which of your strengths do you rely on the most to have the success you have achieved? Empathy. Besides yours, which beneficiary do you think needs the most investment time research money? BIPOC, people in general, folks who've been marginalized in any way, shape or form, um, folks living with disabilities, experiencing homelessness, anybody who is basically not part of the white male cisgender kind of heteronormative culture, time for their voices and their leadership. Absolutely. Best business advice you ever received? Always get your hands on as much money as possible because you'll need it. Now, you said you had a daughter. If she was 10 today, what advice would you give to her? Lift as you rise. Great. Thank you. What advice do you wish you received? That I didn't need to 
just get so caught up in what I thought other expectations other people had of me. And I didn't need to apologize for who I really was. I got very caught up, like even in what I thought my family's expectations were of me and even expectations around what and who and what an entrepreneur is. I think that's changing and I'm, I'm really, I'm happy and I'm happy to be part of that. Like just the idea that your, your goal is to, is growth. Like everybody's got to scale, got to scale. You got to disrupt something. You got to move fast and break things. You got to like, can we stop doing that, please? Like that is to me, like, I think we need to be coming from a place of fixing things, not breaking them. So I try and practice what I call regenerative entrepreneurship, where in that has to do with, you know, circular economy. It's like everything you do should be making the world a better place somehow. And if it's not, you got to ask yourself what the point is. Well said. <laughs> what three values do you live by? Oh, definitely do what you say you're going to do as much as possible. And so I'm a very consistent person. Like you, if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. And but, and also compassion, like when I said empathy earlier, compassion, like just, we've all got to remember that we're in this as human beings. And no matter what kind of transaction I'm in with someone, I always try and find out someone's name, look them in the eye, ask them how their day is going, like whatever. And, and doing that as a practice, I think is really important in life. And also just gratitude and being mindful of social privilege is essential. So I try and really understand that social privilege is part of every single thing that surrounds me and needing to be mindful of that uh, and just kind of checking it and understanding that, you know, when I say something or when I do something that it's coming through a lens of a very particular life experience that is not shared by everybody. Well, thank you so much for sharing. As I summarize, I'm going to come back to you and ask you one more question. <laughs> uh, thank everyone for joining us today. You can subscribe to Wisdom Exchange TV so you can receive each new interview notification in your inbox. Please share this interview by going to the share button located on the page. You can read it, listen to it, or watch this interview. And if you know someone who's had a significant social impact, business, education, civic service or advocacy, let us know. Visit the guest tab on wisdomexchangetv.com and submit your information. Our research team will take it from there. Lastly, if you have contributed to the community or you want to celebrate someone who has, visit Join the Movement tab at umiwe.ca, your contribution counts campaign. For every contribution listed, the UMIWE Social Impact Group will invest in a woman's education or business moving her from poverty to prosperity. Now, we want to go back to our guest and see if she has any words of wisdom for our audience. I want to leave the last words with you. Oh, thanks so much, Suzanne. And yeah, I just think there's a lot of people in the world who are kind of hesitating. Like they think they've got, they've got an idea. There's something that they wish somebody else would do something about. But there's, a, there's kind of a self-doubt that sets in. Or, or they just kind of look at the business pages of newspapers and don't see people who look like them. And to them, I say, it doesn't matter how big what you're planning is. It doesn't matter. You don't need to be going down. You don't need to write an app. You don't need to have an MBA. You don't need to like have gone to business school. You don't need to be raising tons of venture capital. You don't need to be doing any of those things. You just need to be someone who is using your 
your vision and your skill to try and change the world in whatever way you can, wherever you are. So it's kind of the philosophy is do what you can with what you've got, where you are. And don't, don't feel like it needs to be bigger. Just trust that if there's something in your heart that's calling you, go and do it. Take the first step, you know, tell someone your vision, tell your story, ask for help and, and just don't be afraid. You don't need to have it all planned out in advance. Just take that first step, declare your intention and share it with others. And I can pretty much guarantee you that stuff will kind of take on a life of its own from there. Such great advice. Thank you so much. And until next time, make your contribution count for you, me, we. This episode is sponsored by Make Your Contribution Count for You, Me, We, a book written by Suzanne F. Stevens. It's time to act. Let this book be your guide to having a sustainable social impact while living your most meaningful life. Thanks for listening. Watch, listen, or read interviews with conscious contribution leaders who are having a social impact on our communities and beyond. WisdomExchangeTV.com